Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center, making long-term recovery a reality for patients like Cassie, who now supports others struggling with the disease. You can see Cassie's story and learn more at bmcaddiction.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Let's say you're in a room with a bunch of people and you want everyone to like you. There's a bunch of ways to make that happen. You could be super nice and hope that that works. You could try to figure out if there's anything that the people in the room might need and that you could help them to get. But another way to get everyone in a room to like you is a little bit more ruthless. Just throw everyone out of the room who doesn't like you. Now, that may not be the high road, but it could work just as well if what you're trying to do is win a popularity contest. That, to some extent, is what politicians often do when they draw political districts. It's called gerrymandering. And a lot of people believe that our politics are as polarized as they are, in large part because of gerrymandering. Earlier this month, the Supreme Court heard arguments in a major case out of Wisconsin looking at how political parties can redraw districts to serve their own ends. Law professor Justin Levitt, who's an expert on gerrymandering, believes that this decision will rest on the same make-or-break factor as a lot of the most high-profile cases before the court. I think it depends on what Justice Kennedy has for breakfast. Levitt is the associate dean for research at Loyola Law School. And he says that in 2004, the justices split over whether court should get involved in telling lawmakers they're being too partisan. Four conservatives said court should not get involved. Four liberals said, yes, they should. And there are tests, in fact, that we can use to see if things are getting too partisan. And Justice Kennedy was sitting just as he is now, squarely in the middle, said, I don't like any of the tests you've shown me so far, but I don't want to shut the door just yet, so come back with more. Levitt argues that gerrymandering is only one factor in the dysfunctionality of politics today, but it's one that literally hits close to home. What we can really point to is whose voices get heard, Mm -hmm. and that's something that redistricting has direct control over. And Mm -hmm. to the extent that people feel like their voices are not being heard, Um, It is absolutely the case that the way we draw district lines uh, has everything to do with that. Mm. So, I mean, one of the things that you hear political pundits say is, gee, if you look back a few decades, there were a lot of swing voters. There were a lot of swing districts. And and those kinds of districts can elect more moderate people, right, people who are sort of less polarized on the left and on the right. And now hardly any swing districts anymore. Is that because people did honestly just harden their views and become far left or far right? Or is it because the people are still there, but the districts aren't there because somebody drew them out of existence? It's a little bit of both. And I'll say, if you look back even decades before that, people had pretty hardcore partisan polarized views. There was a period of time from roughly the 30s to roughly the 60s when uh, there was a lot more moderation in American politics, uh, generally. And before and after that, it's gotten pretty intense. Uh, So this may actually be, in terms of polarization, maybe more of a reflection of how things used to be. It's also the case that a district that's roughly 50-50 doesn't necessarily produce more moderate elected representatives. Um, So one way to win voters over is to be moderate enough that you can get people to switch party allegiances or consider voting for you even if you're not of their party. Mm -hmm. But another way that you win elections in a 50-50 district is to drive up your base as much as possible and try and encourage the other side to stay home as much as possible 
And those conditions describe an awful lot of what we're seeing today as well. Mm -hmm. So it has, I think, less to do with designing districts that are more 50-50. The district lines do play a role, though, because when you draw districts purely around partisan preferences, people lose a sense of what they're electing representatives for. That is, most of us have a real sense that our representatives are supposed to do something for a territorial community, for a group of people who live somewhere near each other. Right. And when you have a district from uh, my part of the state or when you have a district from my city or my county or, or something that's local and geographic, then you know whether your representative is doing right by you or not. There's a way to measure that representative's performance on something other than just their party ID. When you have a district that splits that up and you have a district that is just drawn for Republicans or for Democrats, Mm -hmm. it's much harder to know whether your representative is performing on any basis other than how's the national party doing. And that tends to drive a lot of polarization. You mentioned before that there was a time when we were super polarized. This is also a time when it feels like we are pretty darn polarized, but that there was a moment, you know, maybe between 1930 and 1960, I think you said, when we weren't as polarized. Was there a time, like after 1960 or in the 50s or something, when there was a turning point or something about the way we drew districts changed and it pushed us to getting more, you know, into sort of getting more polarized as we are now? I think in part it had to do with who was in the political system and who was not. I mean, part of what made the political process a little less polarized in the from the 30s to the 60s is there were a lot of people who weren't functionally in it. Um, and you can't talk about that period without recognizing that uh, an awful lot of minorities were excluded very consciously, very intentionally. Hmm. And as you bring new people into the system, you have new tensions flare up. There has always been a struggle for political power. And I think some of the conditions of World War II and the prosperity the country enjoyed tamped some of that down for the people who were already in the system, but that Mm -hmm. wasn't working well for everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's really important to acknowledge. The polarization that the redistricting process has furthered and the fight over the ability to control the lines has, I think, gotten worse over the last couple of decades, not because of a new technological innovation um, or not because of a new set of rules or a new set of court rulings. I think it's actually been a breakdown of norms where conduct that we wouldn't tolerate in any other legislation, legislators have tried, seen that they can get away with, and then decided, well, let's see what we can do some more. Yeah. It's like a kid testing. Like, can I push that? Oh, yes, I can. Well, could I, you know, could I push it a little farther? Oh, yes, I can. I mean, it sounds like that's what's been happening with gerrymandering, that once things that would have seemed unthinkable become thinkable. Yeah, in large part, that's right. And and the kids have gotten pretty bold. Yeah. <laughs> Is there like a district or two that you can think of that you've come across in your studies where you feel like, effectively, they are drawn in such a way that people's votes are kind of being taken away or like that these are not good representations of who is sitting in that state, let's say. Texas is a great example, and it's a great example because it's in a way equal opportunity. Democrats in the 90s in Texas engineered an enormously effective gerrymander uh, to keep themselves in power, even as the statewide tides were shifting. Hmm. And they ended up with a, a fairly significant disproportion of Democratic seats compared to how the state, it's clear, as a whole was voting. Hmm. Come the, the 2000s, actually, Republicans turned the tables mm-hmm. and committed 
what I think is a wrong of their own. Um, that is, they did the same thing. Mm-hmm. So they gerrymandered the districts in order to uh, entrench their own political prospects and tamp down Democratic political prospects. And in the course of so doing, you know, sort of swung the pendulum the other way, which which doesn't make it right. That's often right, held up right, as a defense. Right, right, right. Um, they did it too. Yeah, right. It is absolutely the case. I mean, you describe it as kids. Right, it's, right. It's like kids it, again. It, exactly. Well, she did it. It's not far off. Right. <laughs> but the fact that the pendulum swings so violently in the other direction then swings so violently back, every tit for tat gets escalated even further. Uh-huh. Now, the the particular way that Texas has gone about it actually infringes on the rights of racial and ethnic minorities there. They have chosen to target racial and ethnic minorities as the vehicle for um, encouraging partisan gain. And as a result, I think since Texas started redrawing districts every decade, there was a series of cases in the 60s that make sure we all have to redraw districts every decade. Since they started, I don't think they've gone one cycle where districts have been upheld by a court. I think every 10 years, courts reliably strike down Texas districts. And then what happens? Do the politicians redraw them in a more in a way that the courts think is OK? What happens when the courts say, no, this is discriminatory? Uh, you can come back to your kid metaphor again. Sometimes huh. the courts step in and let the kids have another shot at it. Uh-huh. And sometimes the court steps in and says, you know what, we've had enough. We're going to do this because we see that you can't. So when you look at Texas now and who gets elected to Congress and who gets elected to the state legislature, um, would you say that the people who are representing the state, either on the national or the state level, that that is an unfair representation of who lives in the state? I would say both that it's an unfair representation of who lives in the state and particularly the Latino population of Texas uh, has been the primary engine of the growth in Texas. Texas has gotten a lot more congressional seats in the last couple decades because the Latino population has grown so quickly. And that representation has not been echoed emphatically in Texas's representatives. But even more than that sort of global unfairness, I think that if you look at the way the districts are constructed... There are a lot of communities that feel like they don't have representation, that they may be part of a district, but that that district doesn't keep the community together in a way that they get to tell the representative, hey, here's what we want. Go represent our interests. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Karen Miller. I'm talking with Justin Levitt. He's a law professor and associate dean for research at Loyola Law School in L.A., do other countries do things this way when they elect parliaments and that kind of thing? Are the people who have the most to gain sitting there with pencils, like drawing who they want to vote for them? No, it's a great point. We stand virtually alone in that. We are the only major democratic Western system that allows the people who have the most to gain or lose by where the district lines are drawn to actually have the pen. I'm guessing you don't think that that's a great distinction. I don't think that's a great place to be. Um, <laughs> we are alone, but not necessarily at the top is what you're saying. Yeah. It, there, there's a lot that we've done right where we stand alone, and, and this is not one of those things. A lot of countries have actually looked at our system and learned from it. And in constitutions that have come around later and statutory systems that have come around later have said, ah, we like a lot of what America does, but that seems really <laughs> counterproductive. Hmm. And so they've put practices in place that are actually, some are just a little bit different from what we have and serious improvements, and some are a lot different from what we have. Right, right, right. So talk about states that you, uh, you know, you alluded to with California have just said, 
this is not the way to go about it. We are going to come up with a different way of drawing districts and electing people. What are some of the states that have done that? Some of the states have done it, and and it's important to note that most of the states that have done it most recently have citizens' initiatives where citizens get to propose laws and changes to the state constitution. So it's really the citizens that have gotten fed up. Mm They're they're actually mostly in the Mountain West, and that's in part because of the possibility of initiatives. So California, Arizona, Washington, Idaho, um, and you'll notice that they run the gamut of political preferences. Right? Right. This is not a liberal issue. It's not a conservative issue. Right. Um, the fact that Idaho has an independent body to draw its lines and, and one that looks very different from one in California but still does not allow legislators to have the pen hmm. is significant. And that also points to another aspect of changing the rules, and that is there's not one magical silver bullet for everywhere. California system works really well in California, but isn't necessary for a state like Idaho. And Idaho's system works really well in Idaho, but isn't necessary for a state like California. Could you take it away from people altogether because people are corruptible? It's hard to know what people's uh, secret motivations are or if they're taking money on the site. Like, who knows? Could you take it away from people and just say, like... We're going to have a computer figure this out. We're going to tell the computer that 60 percent of the population vote is generally Republican and 40 percent in this particular state, 40 percent is Democrat. And so basically they should come up with districts drawn so that about 60 percent of the representatives are Republican, 40 percent are Democrat. If 80 percent are Democrat, that's kind of a problem and not right. So I get this question a lot, and my general answer is that, A, it's really actually hard to do computationally. But but leaving that aside, let's say we get much better at the technology. The problem is much like having a computer design a tax system. So could you have a computer design a totally objective and non-manipulable system of who pays what taxes? Sure. Would you want it to? No. Because we all have really, really deep instincts about what's fair, Mm -hmm. and those instincts differ. And just letting it run up to a computer. So computer, come up with a tax system, and maybe the computer decides that we all pay $50,000 in taxes whether we can afford to or not. Maybe the computer decides that people whose last name starts with D pay taxes and nobody Mm. else pays taxes. Mm. Um, Those are all totally objective and can't be manipulated, but they're not fair. Right, right. And it turns out that we have different views about what's fair in the redistricting process, just like we do in the tax process. And the best way to work those out is actually to have humans reconcile those, sometimes in different ways in different parts of a state. Right? In some states, county lines are super important in the Northwest, but don't really mean that much in the Southeast. Hmm. In some states, the tech sector is really important in one part, and the industrial manufacturing sector mm-hmm. is really important in another part. And in another part of the state, there's no real industry that's super important. What's more important are municipal lines. People who live in those places are actually pretty good at drawing districts that represent how real communities conceive of themselves, which is different in different parts of the state. And if you take away the inherent self-interest, the conflict of interest, it's actually possible to reconcile those political choices without leaving it up to a computer that somebody's got a program. Right, right. What's the path that you see us on? You mentioned there's a bunch of states, mostly um, in the West, uh, that have said we're going to draw lines differently in maybe a nonpartisan or bipartisan way. Is that coming to, you know, like a state near you if that's not you? Or is that like a special thing for, you know, certain states or what? What's going to happen? 
It's coming to a state near you if the citizens want it to. So like everything in politics, it depends on people speaking up and being active. And this one needs an especially big push because the status quo benefits the incumbent legislators. And so to move anything needs extra oomph. Right. And so to the extent people care, they can spur change. It is hard work, but it's possible. And it's incredibly important. Uh, so this is infrastructure. And, you know, when President Trump was on the campaign trail, infrastructure and the need to improve infrastructure was one of the things that got bipartisan agreement. It was one right. of the things that people actually said, yeah, you know what? We do need to fix that mm-hmm. because the roads and the sewers and the electrical grid and the Internet, those are all things that we all really don't think much about until they break. And then everybody cares instantly. And we realize how important they are. Elections are the infrastructure of democracy. It's how we get everything else. And most people don't think about it most of the time until it breaks, at which point everybody realizes exactly how much they care. And if you want to see a place where people connect the lines on the map to their daily reality viscerally, look at the school boards. You will never see people care so deeply about lines on a map as you do when you decide to to draw district lines for a school board. Mm. And people feel that, people get it, people Mm -hmm. understand how important it is, and people fight for it. And if they spent that energy actually fighting for other units of Mm -hmm. political geography, which are just as important, um, we go an awfully long way. Justin Lovett is a law professor. He's the associate dean for research at Loyola Law School, and he's an expert on gerrymandering Justin, thank you so much. This is great. Of course. My pleasure. If you want to check out the cool and scary math of how you turn a party that's in the minority into a party that's in the majority, we've got a guide for you on our website, innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1